We're going to be springboarding from Matthew chapter 28 this morning. The passage that we've been looking at off and on really now for months as we consider Jesus' words before he ascended to heaven to us and to his disciples on the instructions that he gives to us for what we are to do next. And you'll remember as as Uh, We had um, Raul remind us just shortly ago that Jesus says in those final words as he ascends to heaven, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, there's nowhere else, has been given to me. Jesus has all authority. And on that basis, he gives these commands. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he concludes with this portion of the Great Commission that I wouldn't have pictured being a part of it. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You could hear the psalmist resonating with the commands of God there in the scripture we just had read from Psalm 119, over and over looking at the law and saying, to keep the law has this reward. I want to keep the law of God. I want to do what God says is what he's really communicating to us. And Jesus is saying that as a part of our uh, significant portion of our gospel ministry is showing people what it looks like to live for God. And that's the focus that we have this morning The Word of God has many different ways that it ministers to us. It ministers to us in ways that are both profound and practical. The profound speaking oftentimes to our minds and giving us a chance to wrap our our thoughts around great big ideas of who God is. And then practical, where we take those ideas and actually get to live them out. You hear Jesus in this final conclusion saying, taking all of the teaching that he has now for three years, ministered to his disciples and to others, taking all the profoundness of all that he's done, all that he's said, and saying, now, go do it. And teach others to do it as well. I wonder if we could do something a little different this morning and pause for a moment before we really begin and just ask that the Holy Spirit would, in fact, do that for us. Right here, that he would minister the words of God to us in ways that are both profound and practical. That he would give us the thoughts to think, the food, the mental and spiritual food to chew on, and then that we would take it out and, like Jesus charges us to do here in Matthew chapter 28, go do it. Could we just take a moment and pray silently and ask God to do that for each one of us individually? I'd encourage you to bow your head. Just pray silently and ask God to do this for you this morning. In this moment of quiet, our Father, you see every single heart. All authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. There's no authority that hasn't been given to you. And you see with all that authority right into the secret depths of every single heart. You know my heart. And you know, Father, that I'm coming just as needy this morning 
for what is about to be given from your word as anyone else here. So I'm asking on a very personal level as we begin this service, would you speak to me? Would you use your word to penetrate my thoughts and to get down past my thoughts to my intents and and the motivations of my heart and from there that I would actually do your commands? I pray that that would be the case for every one of us, that we would live differently because of what we hear from the word of God this morning. We ask it for Jesus' sake, that he would be honored. Amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 28, this word that's actually used here to begin is the word observe in the English Standard Version that I'm using this morning. And the idea of observe is interesting because it sounds like you should just look at Jesus' commands. So teach them to look at everything that I've commanded you. Observe it. But there's much more behind that idea, and and here's what we actually see when we look at this section of Scripture. It's go, therefore, teach them to observe, or to keep, to guard, to watch over all that I have commanded you. And we've talked about this some in the past, but not so much about what the word observe actually implies in that it is something that I am doing that I treasure. I am protecting it because it is my most valuable possession. I'm standing guard over the commands of God because they are my life. When I was a boy, we had a number of chores that happened throughout the week, and I detested all chores of any kind. I was lazy and I'm still working on that. And, uh, and, uh, but we had a special set of chores once a week that were really loathsome. They were called the Friday chores because they happened, of course, on Friday. It was really creative. And um, so I had these Friday chores. I detested the chores for the week, but the Friday chores were something that I just groaned over. I think it took a few hours to do them, at least at the pace at which I was doing them. And one of the chores was to clean the bathrooms. I'm not a big fan of cleaning bathrooms. I can do it, but... Um, As a boy, I was terrible at it because I did just exactly as much as I could to get past the bar, just to do enough that I would not have to redo it. And one one day, I still remember, I was um, working in my parents' bathroom, and we had copper pipes, and those copper pipes would leach out and stain our white sinks green, or kind of a blue-green, that copper green. And um, I had given the sink an appropriate swabbing, and my dad looked at it and said, "Uh, if I can get that stain out, and I don't actually remember what he said would happen, but if he could do it, you know what I got to do? I got to go back and do it some more. But here's the thing. What we're talking about here is not that chore-level keeping of the commands of God, where it's like I do just enough to say I've accomplished it, I've done it, that I've, I've just barely kind of wiped the sink enough to get... No, if it means getting in there and working at it with the Ajax, yes, it means that. Whatever you need to use, get that stain out, because that matters. Now, it didn't matter to me when it came to the sink in my parents' bathroom, It only mattered that I could be done with my chores and go back to all the things that I wanted to do. And that's the point. That's the point. Keeping God's commands, as Jesus here in Matthew chapter 28 charges us to do, is not about doing just enough to be able to get a pat on the back from our Heavenly Father and say, you can go back to doing whatever you jolly well please. Oh, what we please to do is what pleases Him. And He's saying, 
Come, join me in doing the things that make for your success, the things that actually spell life to you. This that you see pictured here is the Acrocorinth. It's a huge citadel just sitting above the city of Corinth, and we had the chance to go and actually visit it. This was one of the pictures that I took at the Acrocorinth. It is, believe it or not, this place, we think of antiquity in America as being 100 years old, or maybe in the East Coast, 200 years old. This place has been, uh, was built beginning about six or 700 years before Jesus was born. It's old. And it has been continuously used until about the 1700s. So for over 2,000 years, this place was occupied and built and rebuilt and rebuilt again. It was, it was built by the ancient Greeks, and then it was, uh, it was uh, continued on by the Romans and then the Franks, and most recently in the 1700s by the Venetians, each one of them building on this great castle complex and guarding and defending it. Why? Why would it matter? There's an awful lot of work represented in all those stones carried up. It's about um, 1,800 feet above, above the Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean is just right down there, the Gulf of Corinth. So they hauled all these rocks or hewed all these rocks out of the stone that was there on this rocky promontory. And they did it for a long time. And for what reason? Because what they had to guard was valuable. Just below them was the ancient city of Corinth. And the whole Peloponnesian Peninsula stood there with this one place that you must conquer if you were to take that territory. They guarded it. They watched over it. They kept this place because to keep it meant that they had authority over that area. I wonder if God has authority over us when it comes to keeping what he has given to us in clear direction to obey him, to observe all that he's commanded. You know, the Great Commission is an amazing idea because it takes and it makes an implication about what must already be happening for me. To just go to teach other people to obey Jesus' commands, for them to guard, keep, and watch over what he has said, is absolute and total hypocrisy if I'm not first doing it myself. I wonder if we guard Jesus' commands the way that for over 2,000 years people guarded this rocky promontory in Corinth. Have we really kept and watched over what Jesus says? For that matter, what does Jesus say? Like Raul was saying just a few minutes ago, there are many things that Jesus commanded. How do we even get a start on that? And that's what I want to help us do this morning. How do we even begin to think about what it is that Jesus commands and how it is that we can begin to obey him in those areas? I want to show you that by looking at several different, several different things that you will be benefited by, I think, as we do consider. But I want to begin by looking at this from the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, Solomon says in 4, verse 13... Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Now, let me catch that for you just for a moment. What is Solomon saying essentially? He's saying, if you do what I am teaching you, if you keep, if you observe, 
if you guard the things that I am teaching you, then your step will not be hampered, and when you run, you won't stumble. That's a pretty great promise, but listen, he goes on. He says, keep hold of instruction. Do not let her go. Guard her, for she is your life. This isn't just about adding on to the things that make my life better. This isn't just a way to have a more prosperous, a happier, and a more fulfilled life. It is true that it does all those things. But this isn't just an add-on. This, Solomon says, is in fact life itself to you. In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, we hear the way, Mo excuse me, in chapter 32, we hear how Moses describes this, speaking to the children of Israel. It says this as he's concluding. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. By the way, do you hear the resonance with the Great Commission there? What are you doing? You're taking what has been given by God and telling it to, in this case, the next generation. In our case, to the peoples of all the nations. that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Moses continues, For it is no empty word for you, get this, but your very life. These words, these commands, are not just an augment to a happy existence. These are actually your life itself, he says. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over Jordan to possess. Solomon says, she is your life. Moses says, these are your very life. We have something to gain by doing more than a chore level Passover of the things which God has given us to do. We have a guard to keep. We have a treasure to protect because this is not just a crown studded with jewels that might make me feel better about my position or rank or make me feel more beautiful about the way that I look. This is, in fact, life itself. So what I present to you this morning, what I share with you from the Word of God, is life. The very words of God to us. And here's the problem. When it comes to guarding the commands of God, we probably are the most frequent thieves that we'll encounter. We are guarding the commands in one sense to protect against our own thievery from stealing from our own joy and satisfaction because we disobeyed God and what he said. But if we guard Jesus' commands, if we guard what he has said, if we teach others how their lives are wrapped up in the commands of God, then we will experience life on a plane that we might never have thought possible. And in the flow of the context of Matthew 28, we'll have the pleasure of watching Jesus build his church right here. Because this is the way he does it. I have a triple purpose this morning in sharing these thoughts with you. And it's really fairly simple, so I'm going to give it to you right up front so that you understand exactly where we're going and have a map for what we're going to cover. I, I have in my, uh, my sights this morning to show you the goodness of God's commands. 
I'm just going to show you that they're really good. We've heard that they're your life. How are they our life? How are they good to us? And I want to show you the benefits of God's commands. So not only do these come from a good God who has a good purpose, but these things are for your benefit. And then I want to show you how to start obeying what God commands. Because if we talk about it a whole lot and spend the rest of this time just discussing it, it probably won't do us a great deal of good unless we actually start to obey. I want in one sentence to do this, to help you and to help me take hold of life by guarding the commands of God. That's this, this sermon in one sentence. Take hold of life by guarding the commands of God. So I want to help us start by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, another book of Moses. And in this case, I want to show you the goodness of God's commands and that God's commands reveal his heart for you. God's commands, think about it, actually reveal his heart for you. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and beginning in verse 5. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be, now listen, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes. What are the people hearing? Everything that God has commanded. Yeah, it's just like Matthew 28. Yes, that's exactly right. Hear what they're doing. When they hear all these statutes, what will they say? Listen to what they say. The nations surrounding Israel say, Surely this is a great nation, and it's a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Do you hear the testimony going forth from the people if they would but keep the commands of God? All the surrounding nations looking on say, what an amazing God. That's what they say. They say, what an incredible God who is so near to his people, who cares about them so much, whose heart for them is so real that he gives them commands. We've talked in the past about why it is that commands benefit us and the, and the reality that commands, being command-free, being antinomian in that sense, lawless, is really not a benefit to any of us. You parents know that. You just let your children do anything they want, and that's called loving them lots, right? No, it's called not loving them. It's called not being near to them. It's called letting them go their own way and experience the consequences of things that they were never warned about. God says, I'm so close to you. I love you so much. I'm so good to you that I tell you what will be good for you to do. God's goodness his commands reveal his heart for us. And it does it here, you'll see in Deuteronomy, there's many other places we could turn, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this happens in several ways that God reveals his goodness. First of all, it reveals his goodness because his commands are our wisdom and our understanding. Look again at what it says here 
in verse 6, keep them, keep them what? The commands, the statutes, the rules, keep the commands of God and do them for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. How do you know how to live life? How do you know not to do that and cause yourself all of these troubles? Well, because God has commanded it. We had an interesting discussion this morning in Sunday school about the idea of morals in the greatest sense of a societal word, that idea of moralism perhaps, but who sets the morals? Well, look around our society and you actually have to say, what morals? Because we've decided to do like, like a parent as a society that doesn't care about its children and say, oh, anything you want goes. It doesn't really matter. You do whatever pleases you. But that's not what God is doing. He gives us morals in the truest sense of it. He gives us what will actually benefit and grow us, what will bless us, what will change our lives into that which is effective and beautiful and good and righteous and true. So the nations looking in on the nation of Israel could say, look at this people. They get this. They know how to live. That's because these are our life, but they know how to live. It was just a few Sundays ago that Pastor Ralph preached, and he told us that wisdom is doing things God's way. I like that definition. It's pretty simple and straightforward, right? Wisdom is just doing things God's way. Now, let me ask, is there anything wiser or more understanding than doing things God's way? Is there anything that's going to set you up for success better than doing things God's way? Another way you could define wisdom is skilled living. But skilled living is because we're doing it God's way. So the nations looking in on the nation of Israel could say, look at these people. They know how to live. They're doing things God's way. And they have understanding. They know the way of God. And they do what he says. You talk about a testimony. You talk about a witness. You talk about a gospel outreach. Look at what we're talking about. People who can look in from the outside and say, these people are doing things God's way. What a God they must serve who loves them so, so much. But that's not the only benefit here, a demonstration of the goodness of God's commands. It also says here that God's commands testify outwardly to the nations. So going on, I guess that that's actually what we're talking about here. Uh, we're seeing how the nations are looking in and observing that this is a peculiar people. That's the New Testament idiom for it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told that we're a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. It doesn't mean we're unusual or strange. It means that there's the evidence of God's grace upon us, and they can see, the other people can see that his power is almighty. Why? How can they tell? Because we don't do the things that everyone else does. Because we abstain from the passions of the flesh, and instead, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says that we abstain from the passions of the flesh and do good. You know what that's called? Following God's commands. That's what we're talking about. And when people see that we're a peculiar people, not because we dress funny or because we have a special form of speech and we put the right terms in just the right places, and no, 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 no. They know we're unusual because we don't do the things that everybody else does, and instead we do what? Good. We do good. We actually do good. We're out for the benefit of other people. You talk about a testimony to our nation. 
As people look in on our church, as the, as the city of Ferndale sees us who mingle and mix with our community on a regular basis, you know what they need to see? They need to see that we have a God so near to us that he's given us commands and that because we have those commands and do them, we're a wise and understanding people. Not because we're so great. Not because we're so special. But because we have a wise and understanding God who has told us how to live so that we can take hold of life as we guard his commands. It does one more thing. It testifies to us inwardly. God's commands testify inwardly that we belong to God. Listen to what it says. What great nation is there, verse 7 of chapter 4, Deuteronomy. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Think about that for a moment. Listen again. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Do you want an assurance that your prayers are going to be heard? That God is actually going to answer when you call? He's made a promise to you, but he's made it in a very different format than you might expect. He's made a promise because he cares so much for you that he's given you his commands. And the fact that he's given you his commands is the assurance that when you call, he'll hear. What great nation has such a God who is so near, who cares so much? God is near to us and we sense his nearness. We know his presence. We understand how close he is to us because he doesn't let us go our own way and instead teaches us how to really live. God's commands are very, very good. We want to know. We want to guard. We want to keep his commands. But then his commands also have a number of benefits. And I want to show you how those commands actually work out for your good. And I want to show it to you in several different ways. And the first way is through the simplicity of obedience. A number of years ago, we were coming through a very busy time in my family's life. Um, we hadn't really ended it, but we decided to take a break anyway just because we desperately, desperately needed to do something. I'd been working six days a week, and, and we had six kids, and you can add all of the rest of the details in in your own mind. It was a really crazy time of life. And we decided to get away to a place that Melissa's sister and brother-in-law have on Orcas Island. And so we took our 15-passenger van <laughs> and drove up this very steep road up Buck Mountain to where their little cabin was where we could sit overlooking the water to the west, perched high on the side of this rocky hillside. And it was so simple and so peaceful and so quiet in fact, I actually felt a little concerned. What in the world am I going to do? Because I've been so busy for so long, I don't know what to do to sit still. But it was like, how do we capture that simplicity? And I want to tell you this morning that we have something better than an island retreat to go to right here. Something better than just a rocky mountain hillside all alone. We have the simplicity of just doing what God says. Now, catch it. The way that we complicate life 
so often is by trying to do either more or less than what God has actually said to do. That's where the complexities so often enter in. It's in wanting to do more or less than what God has said. We want to be creative with it. We want to say, well, in fact, let me think again about that. Maybe we can improve on what God has said by doing it this way. And life becomes a gigantic snarl. Really, it does. In fact, I've got two illustrations of that for you. One with, with David in the book of 2 Samuel. You'll remember the story. David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Now, the ark, remember has been designed by God long, long before the Davidic dynasty and had a very special way for carrying it. It had poles run through, run through rings on the sides of this ark and it was to be carried by specific people on their shoulders. But now, hold on, because David's got some recent history he's thinking about when this incident occurs that you're going to hear about in just a moment. Uh, because this ark had been captured by the Philistines their enemy, and then God brought terrible diseases and terrible uh, maladies upon the Philistines to the point where they said, let's get rid of this thing before it kills us all. So they did something really different. Instead of putting it on the shoulders of designated people through, with poles that ran through rings on the side of the ark, they put it on a cart. And they did something really crazy because they wanted to be sure that this was, in fact, God speaking the real, true, and living God whose ark this was. And so they put two milk cows in front of the cart and took away their calves that were still, still drinking milk from their mothers. And you know what cows are going to do if they have their calves taken from them. They're going to run home. But not these cows. They ran straight for Israel, the other direction. And they took that cart with the ark upon it all the way back to Beth Shemesh in Israel, which is its own entire story. But I want you to know that because that's the recent history that David has in his mind as he's thinking about this ark. And now he's going to do something to bring the ark to Jerusalem. What could be more amazing than putting it on a cart? Look at how God can do this. And God did, by the way, do it. It was God that did that. I mean, that's just not natural for those cows to head for Israel. They should have headed the other direction and so David's following suit. He's saying, great, let's do this again. Let's improve on the way that God has done this in the past and the commands that we have from long, long ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Let's do it this way. And so he pops the ark on a cart. And this is the story that happens in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He puts it on an ark, or the ark on a cart. And when they came, verse 6, to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, who was one of the people attending the ark, not carrying it, by the, by the way, again, just attending the ark, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. That was an unforeseen problem. The oxen stumbled, so the ark is going to fall off. Or at least it was a concern that it could fall off. And so Uzzah does what looks to me like a very natural and maybe even appropriate, righteous response, and he reaches out to stop it, to steady the ark, and... God kills him. Yeah, he strikes him dead right there. Now, this made David very upset. Uzzah didn't, wasn't upset anymore. He was dead. So, but, but David was very upset and said, how can I possibly bring the ark home to me? Now, just stop for a moment. There's much that could be said about this. Actually, it was the subject of my very first sermon many years ago. But in this case, I just want to focus on one, th 
thing that's helpful to us possibly to think about. David just was trying to do one better than what God said. That's all he was trying to do, just do one better. And he had recent history that looked like it backed it up, but he was wrong. He was wrong. He made the simple and the obvious complex, and the results were disastrous. We can't improve on what God has said. If God has said it, the answer is really, really simple. Do it. I suppose we could end right here, but there's a few more things I'd like to share with you. That's pretty much it. If God said it, do it. There's another illustration of that that's in the New Testament. You'll find in the book of Matthew in chapter 15 that the, the Pharisees were trying to add to or improve on the command of God for their own ends, for their own purposes. And, and the command of God that they were particularly trying to improve upon was honor your father and mother which Jesus is backing up and saying, yes, you should honor your father and mother, but they were saying, wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. I've got a better idea. What we're going to do is take some of these possessions with which I could provide for my father and mother, with which I could honor them, that I could fulfill the command with, and I'm going to say, oh, this is my grandson's name, Corbin, which means a gift to God or consecrated to God. And so they're saying, Corbin, I've given this to God. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't help you. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 15, if you want to look there, about that complexity which they're adding to it. He says in verse 5, You say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. That's what the Pharisees were saying. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus says, you hypocrites. They were just improving on the command, weren't they? Well, it did have a selfish motivation under it, but they were just adding to the command. And look at how complex life becomes. He goes on to quote from Isaiah, Jesus does, in verse 8 saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Listen, teaching as commands, as doctrines, the commandments of men. Do you know where life gets really complex? Trying to do anything other than what God has specifically commanded. He's told us what to do. If you want to get really complex, step into a religious system that builds outside, just outside the fence of God's commands and comes up with ways that now are defined as righteous by which you achieve true righteousness. That's terribly complex. I could take you to illustrations of it. We are here to worship God and obey Him in the very simple matter of obedience. And when we do, we experience peace. We experience peace. Because we're just able to do what God commands. You know, when I think about the priorities of my life, and it seems like a pretty significant jumble even lately, I want to be asking myself, so what is it exactly that God is wanting me to do? Because you know what? That's really simple. I don't have to create it. I don't have to fabricate it. I don't have to reimagine it. I don't have to invent it. I can simply hear from God and do it. And it's a place of great peace. I'm preaching that to myself, by the way. Here's a question that helps you and me to answer that, though. Am I measuring my daily success by anything other than simple obedience to Jesus' commands? Am I measuring my daily success 
by anything other than simple obedience to Jesus' commands. Did I obey him? Then I'm on target. Then I'm where he wants me to be. And if I didn't obey him, then no matter how fancy, how, how special my attempts, it's all an exercise in futility, and it will not lead to peace, and it is not simple. It's very complex. I want to show you another benefit of God's commands, and it's the confidence of obedience. In James chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8, we read these words. God opposes the proud, James says, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Get that word submit. Are you with me? Submit, obey, do what God says. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Get this power. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Sounds a lot like Deuteronomy chapter 4, right? How do we know that God is near to us? Because he gives us his commands. Here, we're told, draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? By doing what he said. Just by doing what he said. We want to come up with fancy ways to be able to do maybe some special form of meditation or set aside unique time or do, I don't even know what all kinds of ways that you're tempted to do special things to draw near to God. But really, drawing near to God is just about obeying Him. You know, I'm not very close to my dad or mom if I'm not doing what they say. I'm running the other direction, right? I'm not wanting to be close. And I'm demonstrating that by my, no matter what my words say, oh, daddy, mama, I love you so much, but I'm not doing what you say. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 15. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. You are not. You do not care. You do not love me. You're doing what you want to do. And these commands that I've given you are for your life, for your benefit. There's a great confidence in this if we can just submit to God. Now, it's interesting. If we submit ourselves, we have both the power to resist satanic attack and we have the nearness and protection and blessing of God himself. So, let me ask you, if you're disobedient to something you know God wants you to do, how near are you to him? I don't know what it is that you don't want to do. I could probably start into some of the things I don't want to do, but that may be not very profitable for us. But in your particular place, where there's something that you don't want to do that is God's command to you, you won't be close to him, no matter what you say or how long you pray about it. Sorry, there is no other way but to obey him in that area. The context of this passage, we have that exact issue going on. The people are wanting to hold on to things that please them while maintaining a connection to God. They want to do what they want to do and somehow still get God's blessing, and it can't be done. If you are in a position of displeasing God, James says, you're actually his enemy, not his friend. You can't be close because there's only an enemy relationship there. So James exhorts us, bring everything you have and everything you are into subjection to God. Obey him, and you can have supreme confidence even when facing enemy attack. Do you want to know how to resist the devil? Well, are you obeying God? We want fancy abracadabra kind of ways of dealing with enemy attacks. Try just obeying 
God. And when you do, the enemy is effectively resisted and you have come close to God. You can resist the devil. He will flee when you're standing together with God himself. And so this produces for us security. Security, knowing that there is a place where we can be absolutely confident that we are doing what God says, and that is in his commands. Here's a question for us to help us think about that. Is there any command of Jesus that I am unwilling to obey? Is there any command of Jesus that I'm unwilling to obey? That's a place to start if you want to be confident in life. If you want to actually know that you can go out and look life in the face, no matter what it throws at you, start here. It's security. Obey Jesus in every place he leads you. There's one more. It's really kind of an interesting one to me. It has to do with the faith of obedience. Now, I don't think of faith and obedience just right off the top as being two words that are put together in the same sentence very well. Because I thought it's all about faith. It is all about faith. But then what's this obedience part? And I'd love to spend a lot more time describing this to you, but we don't have it this morning. I want to give you just enough to help you understand how we see this played out. In James chapter 2, earlier in the book where we were just looking, James remarks, someone will say, now listen to what he says, you have faith and I have works. James goes on to say this. So there's this contrast. You have faith, I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what's the difference between us and demons? Did you catch it? The demons believe and shudder. By the way, the demons have good theology. They understand. James uses this as an illustrative point of the whole of theology. So they know who God is, right? Yes, they do. And they're right. They're right. He is one. That's a key element of all of theology. Our God is one God. Yes, that's right. The demons believe that. They know that. And they shudder. But what do they not do? They don't do anything about it. All they do is wait for impending judgment from the one God that they know exists. That's all they do. But we have the chance to actually obey God. We can do it, and that's what James is saying. You show me your faith by your works. You show your faith by what you do about what God says. Let me say it this way. Faith in action. Faith in action looks like obedience to the commands of God. You want to see a person of great faith? Well, their prayers are always answered. Well, when they, when they speak to God, miraculous things happen. Those are all true. But the way to really identify a person of great faith is to check out their obedience. Are they obeying what God says? And I want to tell you why it's so significant, why it's difficult to obey God. Why does it require faith? I've often reverted to this passage in Isaiah chapter 55, God saying, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than your soar, my thoughts and my ways higher than your thoughts and your ways. Listen, you know why it takes faith to obey what God says? Is because it doesn't always make sense to us. In fact, can I be honest? It often doesn't make sense to us. But it's really simple. And you can have great confidence if you do it. 
but it's going to require that you exercise faith. So it's no wonder that James says, show me your faith by your works. Because the real test of faith is whether or not you believe God when he says to do things that don't look like they make any sense. Oh, this is the upside-down way to build anything. If you look through the Gospels, by the way, you'll find that that's exactly the way that God builds his kingdom. Always. He builds his kingdom upside down. A lot of times it's not too flashy. Sometimes it looks like defeat. Take the cross for an example. It looked like defeat, but it was the greatest victory that was ever achieved. God builds his kingdom upside down, and he asks you to join him in faith by just doing what he says. You don't have to reinvent it. You don't have to know all the reasons why. You have to do what he says. We get the chance to demonstrate our faith by our obedience and grow. If you want to grow your faith, start here. Obey what you know God says is true. Here's a question to help us think about that. Where can I deliberately and intentionally obey God? Where can I deliberately and intentionally obey God? For further reference in the future, if you want to study this out more, another great place to go would be the book of Hebrews. In chapters 3 and 4, you find that obedience and belief are almost synonymous in the way that the author uses them. We can't investigate that this morning, but for the future, consider that. I want to take us to this final question. If, in fact, these commands guarding them is our life, how do we get started? So here we are. How do we get started? How do we practice God's commands? Start by taking the next step. Now, as we've said, there are many commands throughout the Bible, and Jesus himself has given us many commands. So where do you start? How do you even know where to begin? And the answer is simple, the next step. I had a friend, he was our, uh, a personal mentor to me many years ago, and, um, and he's the man who married us. And uh, he told me, we were living in Chicago at the time, and he said, Rob, how many green lights do you have to have to get from Chicago to California, where I'm from? And, uh, or something like that. And I would like to ask you that question. How many green lights do you have to get? Have to get? Now, there's a lot of green lights. I lived um, right near to Ogden Avenue on the west side of Chicago. And there's uh, an intersection at Ogden and 294. And then there's all the intersections that are going to come down. There's a lot of intersections, and there's quite a few lights. How many green lights do I have to get, have to, get to California? but only one at a time. Just one at a time. You do have to have all of them, but only one at a time. Can I just tell you, that's exactly the way it is for us. It's like, well, I don't even know where to begin. How do I get started with this thing? I mean, look at all these commands. What in the world am I to do in my whole life? And boy, I mean, if I started really evaluating my life on the basis of these commands, it's impossible. I give up. No, 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 stop. You need one light. Take the next one. Take the next light and you're on your way west to California. Well, you're on your way to the will of God, to confidence, security, and peace. So start by taking that next step. When it comes to taking, to obeying all that Jesus commands, we just need to start with the next command. For example, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Do it! Let him build your faith as you pray for those who hurt you. He says, repent! 
Ask him to show you where you've gone your own way. And then in that specific area, turn to him. Let him hold you up as you draw near. He says, forgive again. By the way, that's a specific test of faith in the New Testament. Forgive again. So do it. Reach out and wait for him to give you the grace to let go of your offender and your feelings of injustice. He says, don't judge. So turn that inclination to center someone else into prayer. And when you aren't judging, you get out of the way of the judge of all the earth. That's just a sampling of a few of Jesus' commands. You don't have to know them all before you can start doing one. Just start. Let God use the people and circumstances of your life to bring you face to face with where you need to take the next step to obey God. It's super simple. Take one step. And then obey what you already know. Oswald Chambers says it this way. Obey God in the thing he shows you. Get this. Obey God in the thing he shows you, and instantly the next thing is opened up. We read tomes, Chambers goes on to say. We read tomes or volumes on the work of the Holy Spirit when one five minutes of drastic obedience would make things as clear as a sunbeam. I suppose I shall understand these things someday, he puts in quotes. You can understand them now, he says. It is not study that does it, this understanding that we need. It is not study that does it, but obedience. The tiniest fragment of obedience and heaven opens and the profoundest truths of God are yours straight away. He finishes with this comment, God will never reveal more truth about himself until you have obeyed what you know already. And why would he? Why would God reveal more about himself than what you're already willing to do? Great theology that is not practiced in life is hypocrisy. And all he would be doing is heaping upon you your own lack of sincerity and all the judgment that comes. Do you want to know what to do next? Well, take the next step and obey what you already know. And then learn Jesus' commands. There are many. Ask God as you're reading your Bible to show you the commands of Jesus and let the Holy Spirit minister those to you on a very practical level. Here I am. I'm back reading my Bible again and God says, oh wow, I didn't know he said that. Right. Then that's your next step. Then you can obey what you already know just by learning his commands and doing what he says. But here's a really simple way to begin today. Just love somebody today. And when I say love somebody today, I don't mean just do nice things for them, like patting them on the head and hoping they're okay. I'm talking about loving them like Jesus loves them. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus' summary of all of the commands of God hangs on two things. Jesus says that all the commandments... All the commandments hang on two great commands. And the first is to love God. And the second, he says, is like it. Love somebody today. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So that irritating person that comes across your path this afternoon, you want to obey Jesus, right? I mean, we do, don't we? That person that gets in your way at the grocery store, uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's the one. 
uh, the family member who always finds the way to get under your skin in the most effective possible way. That's the person we're talking about. Love that person. Why? Because it is a divine providence. It's a divine intersection right there. Right there. Right there. Jesus is giving you the chance. Yes, he's giving you the chance to obey him. And when you obey him, people look and say, what a great God who is so wise and gives his wisdom and his understanding to this people that they might really take hold of life and know how to live. We don't know how to live, but these people, these people. So you want to win this world for Christ. So you want to win Ferndale for Christ Jesus. This is the place to begin. And I'm not the one who said it. It's Jesus. Jesus said, teach them. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Take hold of life by guarding the commands of God. This is not a lackadaisical way to take care of those things that God has said and just to brush them off and get them out of our way. It involves everything that we have. It involves keeping, protecting, and guarding what Jesus has said as if our life depended on it, because it does. Let's pray. Our Father, we're asking that you would take your word and minister it to us through the next person that comes across our path that needs to be loved by you, through the next step we need to take in accordance with an obedience that calls out more than we thought we had. We're asking, we're just asking like a group of children coming to their father, please, Father, help us to want to obey you more and help us to see how obeying you is in fact our very life. For Jesus' sake, amen.